Hi and hello Watch fans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker Rob Nuds, my co-host Alan Ben-Joseph and one of British watchmaking journalism shooting stars, Scarlett Baker. How are you doing? Good, that was a nice intro. I've never been called that before, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of thinking, I was trying to make it sort of vaguely like exciting, complimentary, dynamic, but then I was like halfway through saying shooting stars and I was like, don't they just disappear <laughs> after a while? Well, let, let's hope it's not too short-lived of a career, but no, thanks. When you said that, I was like, wait, is that me? <laughs> you talking about me? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're the only person we've got on the other end of a line, unless Alon's squirreled away another <laughs> surprise guest, but welcome to the show. We've never actually met in real life, have we? Ever? No, 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 no. So as far as I understand it, Alon just randomly one day at Geneva Watch Days started stalking you online and he kept telling me, oh, I've just messaged Scarlett. I'm like, do you know this woman? Or like, <laughs> are we just doing that now? And apparently you were more than receptive to him just reaching out and saying hello, which is very nice. So thank you for that. No, not at all. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a huge honor. Welcome, Scarlett, because nothing was lied about that. So I've written <laughs> your wonderful words both on the British version of GQ and High Snobiety. Thank you. And I've heard your even more vibrant and fun voice on our mutual friends podcast, George Bamford. I love George. We do too. We do yeah. too. And we love George, but we're also a little scared of him because of his <laughs> incredible powers. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I'm not scared of him, actually. He's uh, lovey-dovey and great to give hugs to. <laughs> I can't say you've ever hugged George Bamford, but... you never hugged George Bamford? I don't think so, but maybe I'll get that out of this podcast. If there's anything I can get out of this, maybe it's a hug from George Bamford. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually giving me a good segue here, because, because why? You have committed to champion, championing a space for women in the world of watches. And that's exactly what Rob and I actually set out to do as well. One of our missions with the Real Time Show, we had quite some difficulty to get more women on. Mm -hmm. That was also one of the reasons I was so happy that you actually responded so positively and was happy to come on the show because we know how busy you are. You're chatting all over the world. You actually create a lot of amazing content. Don't make me sound more glamorous than I am, all. <laughs> you are very glamorous, as far as I can see. When scrolling through your Instagram uh, handle, for those listeners that want to check out Scarlet, which is S-C-A-R-L-E-T-T, and I'm Baker, B-A-K-E-R. And our handle is at S-C-A-R-L, and then I-N-T-H-E. S-H-I-R-E, Scarl in the Shire. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. There is a story behind that. <laughs> tell us, tell us, please do. Um, so I'm from a, a small town in the Midlands, so in the, the, the middle of England, um, called Staffordshire. Um, and when I first got Instagram, I think it was like 14. It was like the era where your Instagram name really mattered and you know defined who you were, the life of uh, a 14-year-old. Um, so I came up with the idea of Scarlet in Staffordshire, Staffordshire, and then from that I went to Scarlet in the Shire. But then people messaged me being like, are you a big Lord of the Rings fan um, because of the Shire? And I'm like, regretfully, no, like have seen it, enjoy it. But no, sadly, it's not my affinity for, for Tolkien and, and Hobbits. It's just related to my hometown and my roots. <laughs> 
Well, that is heartwarming, but there is always the opportunity to branch out into like Middle Earth advertisements. If you ever want to, you know, you could do like adverts for swords or like <laughs> elven tiaras or something or other. Definitely a market for that, you know, watches and jewelry. We can find an avenue somewhere in there. Who knows? Absolutely. It does look like you've got quite an exciting life on Instagram, though. Is your real life not as exciting as Instagram makes it look? <laughs> I mean, I'm sat here right now in my kitchen and. Next, next to my computer, there's literally a, my mum's going to kill me for saying this. There's literally a plate with um, like my leftover breakfast on that I haven't managed to tidy away yet. Um, and yeah, there's a few uh, empty cigarette packets around the table. So don't believe everything you see, people. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, that kind of fits the fits the mold of the rocks. Yeah, I imagine you are. So how did it all start then? Where, where did I mean? You started off in Staffordshire, and then you ended up in GQ many years later. So how? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of strange, like looking back, really, because um, I still feel like I'm so new and, and learning so much on the job. But I started out, I mean, how far back do you want me to go here? <laughs> Literally all the way back to when you were born. Everything, the background, like where was your first encounter with watches and jewellery? Why is fashion so important to you? What were your first jobs, your education? What disappointments you had? Tell us everything. Okay, so my mum had me at 10 past 10 in the morning. Um, and then from there, um, I grew up really loving to read. Um, and, we, you know, we always had a bookshelf of, of really cool magazines. And my mum was a, a devout Vogue subscriber. And she has some really, really, really cool old issues that, I mean, she, you know, she reads it once, then it sits on the shelf. And we probably don't look at it for another 10 years. But I grew up with like that kind of in my background. And, you know, really beautiful coffee table work. So my mum trained in, in textiles and interior design. So she was always having like really cool sketchbooks that she was bringing home from from college and showing us. So I feel like the creativity, that kind of like, I guess, flame in my head was burning from a young age because of my mum. And then my dad um, worked in, in, I always like forget what to call his job, um, in like wealth management finance um, and that did not appeal to me at all um, I just didn't really understand it I remember like when I was younger helping him revise some exams by like highlighting certain things on the page and like getting him like testing him or whatever but that was like the limit of me giving a shit about his world basically but it was my dad that was wearing watches when I was younger um, and my mum was probably a bit more fixed like you know I was looking through her wardrobe and trying on her high heels when I was you know, about six or whatever. And she was looking at me thinking, God, please don't break your ankle. Um, so kind of from there, I pursued English, um, like English literature, English language. Um, and that, I think my, my appetite for reading really went, you know, full steam ahead down that avenue. Um, and so, you know, at school, I just loved doing anything related to books, like it's so where my analytical brain, I think, started to really kick in. Um, and during my A levels, like I still look back now at the books that I have for like my exams, and like they're annotated to shit. And like, I um, I don't want to sound like you know blowing my own trumpet too much here, but words always came naturally to me. Like, put me in a maths lesson, and I'd cry my eyes out. Like, I always remember my GCSE exams, my biology test. Like, hated it, came out crying. Like that part of my brain just doesn't make sense. Um, but the words did. So uh, I went to uni. I went to University of York and studied English um, and yeah, had an amazing three years there doing that. 
I never really branched out from what I was doing at uni. Like never thought about doing internships or anything like that until my third year because I was, as I said on George's podcast, sorry for name dropping another podcast there, guys, um, was <laughs> way too focused on having a good time, having a boyfriend, all of that, um, and just kind of finding my feet because it was my first jump to city life from Stafford. Um and yeah, I just, I really wanted to enjoy the uni experience. So then in third year, I signed up to be the deputy editor of the fashion magazine. Um, and it was my first time kind of exploring what I actually wanted to do and this thing that had been burning within me since I was younger. Um, so I did that. Um, and then from there, I also actually did an internship, not an internship, a summer program um, with Condé Nast College. And it was like a, a summer intensive course in London so I spent four weeks, I think I was, I was living in Kensal Rise, thinking I was Carrie Bradshaw at the age of like 21, running around, you know, living my best life. And I was like, oh my God, I want this. Um, but then I knew when I graduated, it's like, oh God, what I did my thesis on is like nothing related to what I, I do now. Um, but when I graduated, I knew that I wanted to be in London, but I knew I didn't want to go into a job yet. Not because I couldn't be asked. Um, I just felt like I needed more experience under my belt. Um, and I, I just really love, sounds like God, she needs some hobbies, but I really love reading like academic journalism, like, you know, academic reports and things like that. Um, and it was the first time in my master's that I got exposed to them in the fashion and creative world. Like, you know, I was so used to reading like Freudian theory about like Frankenstein and, and things like that. Um, no hate on that at all but it was the first time I was kind of introduced to that and I was finding an avenue down that route so I ended up doing fashion journalism for my my master's in London um and you know worked alongside that because hell you're making no money doing a master's so I was working at uh Southland Centre South Bank Centre in London which for those that don't know is just basically a like a concert hall venue I was working behind the bar there. Um, so I'd finish at uni and then go do that in the evening and then come back and then write my work for the next day at like two in the morning, um, which kind of paved the way for me being the night owl that I am today. Um, so then, yeah, I did my master's. Um, halfway through that, there were internship opportunities. So I interned at Condé Nast at the time when it was Condé Nast International, um, working with their licensing team, which was super different for me. It was, you know, the more business side of things um which I think I was terrified about at first but if anything it was a blessing in disguise because it's definitely you know it's it stuck with me and has informed the more business side of my brain today um and then I also did an internship at Love Magazine um working as the staff writer well the, the role actually grew from an internship to staff writer um so I finished my degree on a Friday we had a big exhibition um as like our final major projects and then on the Monday I started at Love um, and then ended up being there for, I think, like a year and a half. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of dates now. Um, COVID then happened, obviously, jobs, insecurity, all of that. Um, so I started doing some freelance work and then branched out into more fashion and features magazines with titles such as One Granary, Dazed, Another. Um, and then from there... I then went, so the, sorry, this bit's very rambly. I'm aware I've been listening to the sound of my own voice for a while now. Um, so please feel free to intersect at any point. Um, 
from this point, um, the the founder of Love Magazine, Katie Brand, um, started off a new publication outside of Condé Nast um, called Perfect. So I went there um, and helped out with that and was working on publishing and um, the editorial side of the masthead, which was something I've been able to explore at Love as well. So again, kind of dipping into that business side of things and advertising relationships and, and learning a bit more about that, um, which, is, is, as I said before, has been been really fruitful for my career. Um, today and then from there I actually got a random message super super random and I kicked myself now for not opening it earlier um from Michel Jeannot who is um an incredible incredible Swiss journalist um and he, he's taught me everything I know um he's he's a guru to me he's he's very dear to me um he messaged me on LinkedIn saying there's a, a job opportunity coming up for an editor-in-chief role for a digital uh watch publication called The Next Hour um I read it and ignored it um I thought it was spam <laughs> um I don't actually know if I've ever told him this so yeah here's here's the big reveal <laughs> um I'm probably have over a drink or something I've forgotten um but yes I, I ignored it thought it was spam um and then came back to it like a week later and I was like wait what was that like weird message I had about editor-in-chief and like obviously your heart jumps at you know saying the words editor-in-chief so I looked at it and I was like he clearly like you know am I the right candidate for this has he looked through what's actually on my LinkedIn because I wasn't really updating my LinkedIn then I mean I'm not gonna lie I still don't do it that much now which I should um but yeah um he ended up chatting had several rounds of interviews um did a little bit of research pretended I knew like god I don't even know what I pretended at that point I definitely didn't know what a bloody tourbillon was um or how to say it for that matter um came up with some some examples of work like some future content we could do um and then got the job and then two weeks later he had me out in geneva at grubel forces uh italia um i was like oh my god is it all like this because if it is i want in um and yeah that was that was pretty much it from there um and then alongside that i was working as the editor for man about town magazine which, for those that don't know, is a biannual British men's bible of all things fashion and culture. So I was uh, doing that alongside the next hour because I still didn't want to neglect what I was doing in the fashion industry. I wanted to sort of tie, marry the two together. Um, so did that and then kept the watches going. Sort of, I remember even like going to my first ever press event. I didn't even know that you could try the watch on. <laughs> I was like looking at it from afar. Um, and I was like, it's so pretty. Um, terrified to touch it. And I'm not going to lie, I still get that now. Like, you know, when the class can just be a bit funny sometimes. Yeah. You just can't yeah. quite work out. And you're like, oh my God, everyone's staring at me. Um, yeah. Like, it, I just ended up falling in love. And if you'd have told me two years ago I'd be in the watch industry, I'd be like, what are you from about? Like, you know, I didn't care about my dad's watches when I was younger. And now I'm like, you make sure you get on the will in my name, please. <laughs> You seem to have taken to the industry like a duck to water. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It feels like you've been around for a lot longer than a couple of years. I mean, but you have such a great background for it. Like it all came so naturally, also organically. And it sounds like there wasn't much downtime in your life. Like you weren't, you know, doing ridiculous jobs for several years while you searched for a way to break into the watch industry. It just kind of happened. You were discovered effectively. And then here you are. Does it feel like... Does it feel real to you or does it sometimes just feel like you're not really sure how you ended up where you are? I've, yeah, I mean, I constantly think, how how did I get here? Like, 
how I said, if, if you'd have told me two years ago I'd be in the watch industry, I wouldn't have believed you. If you'd have told me I'd be writing for GQ, I wouldn't have believed you even more. I'm very interested in that, you know, because I, I'm going to tell you something very personal and, um, you know, it, it's still an open wound. I have a, a whiteboard that I think I must have had in university 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down like my life goals on it. And one of those life goals was to write for GQ, which... Um, somehow <laughs> I've managed to not achieve uh, and I I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of because I still had yeah. GQ up right up there on the podium of like the ultimate men's magazine it was when I was growing up at least that that was the one that we all sort of yeah to like you know Vogue in its absolute heyday but for men yeah fans. and I I still hope that one day someone will publish something of mine in GQ but you have just taken to it like I, I was reading your work on the site the other day and I was thinking, you know, you could you could basically be here for the rest of your career if you want to. You've just got such a great like niche and a command of the subject matter. Like, do you think you'll stay forever? Thank you. I mean, that that's that's the plan for me. I will definitely be writing in some capacity forever. And I hope that is in in watches and, you know, jewelry as well, which is also very new terrain for me. But I mean what what I'm doing now, so it's actually really exciting that we're having this call today um because we just announced um i've just curated my first ever watch supplement um so i guess just to kind of backtrack from where i'm at now um from the experiences i was sharing before um working at the next hour and man about town together definitely taught me a lot about time management and then in december um i actually left all my jobs um, and I spent three months, three and a, three and a half months traveling with my best mate through Central and South America, um, which I think was the first time since I was like, I mean, it's, I don't know, where was me since 21 that I had a break. Um, but I had like, it had been nonstop. There was always something to do. And I was always chasing things so hard to just prove that I could make it work and also to, you know, pay for the roof that I was putting over my head in London. Um, so we weren't traveling together. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to work when I'm out there because I wanted to feel refreshed and excited and let my mind wander a little bit, read some more because, you know, that's the the biggest thing that can motivate and inspire you as a journalist, I find for me anyway. And I got two weeks in and I remember (laughs) lying on the beach in Mexico, beer in hand and had Wi-Fi and I looked down and I had an email from GQ saying we really want to write like we want you to work with us and I was like what like this is crazy so I didn't have laptop or anything like that no iPad so obviously said yes um because at that point it was paying for my next hostel along the trip so I'd just be writing these articles from my phone um and that also made me realize it can work anywhere um but yeah that's how it started with GQ and then when I came back I actually went back to the company I was working at before, Man About Town, and uh, and High Stability then happened as well. I just basically wanted to hit the ground running when I came back, and I was like, right. I, I felt serious FOMO being away for three months, and like that's when Watches and Wonders happened. Watches and Wonders happened as well, and I was like, I'm missing everything. So came back, then became watch editor for uh, Man About Town, Wonderland, Roller Coaster, and Amazing, which is four titles owned by Visual Talent. Um, and so today we just shared the teaser for our first ever watch supplement. Yeah, I think I felt, I loved the break, but I knew 
I just feel like I have so much to prove and I feel like time's constantly against me. Let's talk about that a little bit, the feeling that you have so much to prove. Why is that? Because you can count on, you know, so many hands, how many women there are in this industry. I mean, more than two hands, obviously. Not many hands. No, exactly. And if if I didn't give a shit about this industry, you know, full frankness, two years ago, I didn't just because I didn't know about it. I felt so annoyed when I first got the job that I didn't know about it. I felt like I couldn't be part of it. Um, and if I can make anyone else feel like they can join this community, even if it's just one person, then I have succeeded. Um, yeah, I just I just want to make people my age and younger and older or whatever, or people who you know, don't know anything about watches. I just want to make them care because it's such an incredible world. And it, it pisses me off that people think that watches are boring. People think that, you know, they're not art. And I'm like, okay, but shoes are, handbags are. Why is watch not art? Like, it frustrates me. <laughs> I totally feel you there. But I guess a lot of people wouldn't instinctively think that a handbag or shoes could be art unless they knew as much about it as maybe you did. Yeah. Someone did that research. And it's yeah. incredibly frustrating and it doesn't get any easier. But in fact, it probably builds the frustration over the years because people just like you said, don't even know the industry exists. They don't, but it's not just that they don't know that it's like there, they think that it died. Yeah. And that, that's almost more offensive to me. It's not like you're telling them something that's new that they just hadn't yeah. discovered yet. It's like this, this thing has been here all this time and we're the custodians of it. Yeah. For you, it's even more important because you are a woman, one of the very mm-hmm. few that is prolifically writing about watches right now and who has such some name recognition and some platform from which change could be made. From a consumer perspective, when you read watch journalism, does it make a big difference to you if you're reading another woman's words or if you're reading a, a man writing about, let's say, a man's watch and also a man writing about a woman's watch? What should, what's the difference there? How does it make you feel? I'm probably more inclined to read you know, female journalists writing about watches but then also at the same time if someone has an important opinion and I think it's a good piece I'm not looking at who wrote it per se I guess until after the piece and then thinking oh I want to chat to them some more um men commenting on ladies watches I don't even like the phrase ladies watches that really annoys me um (laughs) depending on who they've interviewed depending where they got that research because I'm not here for saying you know we can't ever write about people outside of you know our gender race ethnicity you know anything like that you know everyone has an opinion and I think as long as you form that opinion in a authentic incredible way it doesn't matter so would I be offended or frustrated if I read a piece from a man writing about you know women only like this size watch it depends it depends on how they phrase that and it depends on where they got that research if they're just on a you know monologue about <laughs> women and watches i'd be like well i'm not reading your work again but yeah it's 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 subjective it's subjective and i think the whole point of moving this industry forward is that you don't alienate people you try and make you know it's it's a group responsibility we're here to to get rid of well i certainly am here to promote moving away from the archaism of the industry um and i feel like there's a lot of people that are now receptive to that that irregardless of you know who they are as a person it's well i hope you're right i i recently had some pretty troubling experiences actually i won't mention publication titles but i had this idea a couple of years ago to try and increase the 
female readership of a of an outlet I was writing for, and I thought mm. that's about as far as I should really take this idea. I was like, okay, so mm. that's an intention that I have, but like, I I can't possibly be the leader on this subject because I'm just another middle aged white guy. <laughs> so I think on that note, it's important to flag like, and this is what you have to think about as a journalist, whether like, irregardless of what kind of journalism you write is are you the best person to tell this story and that's something you have to think about all the time and even when you are writing a profile on someone it's learning how much that you're ultimately telling it in your words but you know you don't want to put yourself too much into that narrative so that's something you do definitely have to think of but i used to be the editor of man about town i'm a woman i was writing a publication for men i write for british gq yes they spotlight incredible women but you know it's primarily a men's magazine. So I don't think I don't think we should get bunged down by that. Otherwise, how are we moving forward? No, that's true. I suppose I, I see it maybe a little differently because the opportunity for men to write yeah. is especially about these topics, it's kind of always there. And you you get like good men writing about watches and you get less talented men writing about watches, but they have a bit more of a chance to get into that position largely because mm. they're male. I suppose the way I look at it, like if I'm reading GQ and it's an article written by a woman, there mm. is no doubt that that woman's article deserves to be there on its own merit. You know, you don't get yeah. anything handed to you. So I guess like there's something a little bit less uh, yeah. disturbing, I guess, because what I'm saying is it, I like to believe, as naive as it is, that we live in a meritocracy, but we yeah. certainly all don't live in a meritocracy. Yeah. Maybe men live in a meritocracy a little bit more where like, their effort is more duly rewarded. All I want to do is champion a space for women and anybody who feels like you know they can't be a part of this industry or journalism or media in general. I would almost be, as me talking about feeling like I need to prove something, I'd always be more frustrated if I got chosen for a job because I am a woman. Mm-hmm. I'd want it to be down to the, as you say, the merit of my work. I will, you know, take away yeah. the names and get two people to submit the pieces. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, the, there's that side to it too. So it's it's a difficult line to play. It really is. But as long as we're being more inclusive than ever and actually giving the opportunity to these people, you know, that that's, that's paramount. I, I mean, I think the fact we're having a conversation is like, far further forward than one expected watchmaking to be a few years ago because it is not a very quick moving beast yeah. that's for sure which makes me glad that i've joined when i have but also sad for all the people before that you know got sidelined yeah no i'm absolutely absolutely correct yeah i mean there's plenty of industries now where you might well be picked because you're a woman but like in watchmaking that really still isn't the case like it's mm. it's, it's still the opposite like i was i was saying i, I went i had this idea to do like a push to increase our female following. And I thought, okay, well, to do that, we need to get more women working Mm. for the media title because we need to know what content women want to create for women, what content women want to read. It's not my place to then dictate like, oh, this is what I think women should be reading about. So we're going to do this and get a woman to write. It's like, no, it has to be entirely female generated. So I I pitched this idea to my superiors and the response that came back was 5% of our readership is female. Uh, why would we possibly like want to bring on females to write for our audience? And I'm like, because only 5% of our readership is female. Like, Do you not think there's a correlation there between the lack of content that we have for women by women and the low number of readers that we have that are female or identify as such? 
Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm silent because that makes me really angry. <laughs> I was actually in a room. This will make you even angrier. And I'm so, I didn't get you on this podcast to piss you off, I promise. But <laughs> I was in a room with uh, four other people. And I was absolutely convinced when I walked into that room with this idea <laughs> that I would get support from at least two of them. And I thought well, that'll be mm. the majority. All four of them basically laughed me out of the room. And I was I was really crestfallen and I was thinking, okay, I, I'm not like a social warrior. I, I'm yeah. maybe not the guy to solve these problems, but like surely there's something here that we're not addressing. It just feels so obvious, like the elephant in the room, like how much the industry, the journalistic industry has talked down to female customers throughout my career, which is only the last two decades, but and I'm sure it was even worse before then, but now really it's just, it's so jarringly anachronistic the way that female consumers and aficionados are treated still. I, I can't like in good conscience just pretend that, oh yeah, we should just carry on and not at least make an effort somehow. I mean, back back to the point you said that about maybe I'm not the guy to, you know, you don't have to be a social warrior and I, you know, I don't class myself as one either, but I don't know, just doing the right thing. Everyone has that responsibility you know, even down to the people that you interview and you get so many brands where it's not just about the media being diverse. It's about the people that sit on that watchmaker bench. It's, it, you know, it's not just about making sure that marketing team or PR team are, you know, diverse. It's it's every single angle and there needs to be more of a precedent, you know. To have a watch company now isn't just about making sales. It's not about having people just wear your watch on their wrist. And if people want to buy into a, a, a watch and a brand for its story, its heritage and, and what it actually means, which people do now more than ever, you know, particularly with like my generation there's such precedent on buying for purpose. Why would you buy for a purpose that's half-assed? Why would you not something that truly mm. represents where we are now and what we should be and what we should have been many, many years ago? Because women wore watches first. <laughs> Damn straight, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, we stole that thing from you. Like everything else, I know. Hopefully, our generation or the younger generations, so your generation, I guess you're a different generation from me, uh, can do something positive about that as we go forward. But are there any brands right now that you would identify as doing a good job in that regard? Are there some that you think really do deserve a lot of credit for the effort they're making? I love Tag right now. Um, yeah. Why? Why is that controversial? Oh no, it's just my personal bias because I'm oh. like, oh. I am. Um, I think they're a brand that has really tried to tap into a young market this year. I I have an affinity for them anyway because I have my dad's Monaco, and um, and I like the fact that people go, "Isn't that massive for your wrist?" And I'm like, "Are you the one wearing it on my wrist?" Like, if I like it, like also look at all the other massive things like i wear stupidly like stupidly big rings um and people just get so weighed down by that and i don't know i just really like the the pink panache dial that they did with the carrera like yum loved that i know a lot of people <laughs> probably weren't keen on it and saw it as a lady's watch but i don't know i just i really like tag and i think they've worked hard this year to to really tap into to younger people this tag you're talking about is that the one with the really like bright fuchsia dial? I yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that. Now, yeah. funnily enough, that one I liked a lot. Like, I thought that was bold, and I thought that was kind of smart uh, to take like a classic canvas like a Carrera and do something like that with it. That was that was pretty pretty sweet. But do you like Nomos? 
I do. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like I don't. I've, I've never connected with anyone from Nomos. I mean, I was put onto them by my boss at the next hour. He really liked them, um, and so by default, well, you know, I, I got to learn about them. But since then, I haven't really engaged with them that much. And I guess they're not reaching me right now through my feed. So, well, we can put you in touch with them if you like, because Alan and I have not much like uh, that's how we met um, when we first fell in love all those years ago. <laughs> um, and I live around the corner from Nomos, so um, oh, if you want to come out for a tour, then we can arrange that as well. Yeah, I'd love to. They do some really good stuff, and to be honest, they kind of moved away from like genderizing the watches to begin with. Can you tell me how to pronounce the second word so I don't sound like an idiot? Glasseter. That's the hardest part of joining the industry. Never mind learning the terminology. It's like, like I got, I've got a really good video of my mom trying to pronounce Udmar Pigue, and she's like, Odemar's pig word. And I'm like, not quite. <laughs> Close. I mean, I've got them absolutely. <laughs> Don't worry, Scarlett. We do that with French words all the time. Oh, yeah. We have a running running joke on the uh, on the show how we just cannot pronounce French brands at all. Yeah. I mean, my colleague said to me, not my colleague, my boss, he'll kill me if he hits that. He hits me saying my colleague. Um, he said the other day, you know the phrase in lieu? Yeah. We say it obviously in the most like Anglican way, in lieu. And he was like, in lieu. I was like, well, what, what, what do you mean? But I'm trying hard with my French. I really am. But I also remember on a press trip, I got into the car and the, the taxi driver asked me if I knew French, like much French. And instead of saying un petit peu, I was like, Petit pois, and I was like, I'm just a peas at home. So, guys, I want to jump in. I want to jump Please. in. Please. So, I've been sitting back for at least 35 minutes, enjoying how excited Rob is getting. And I'm <laughs> super happy, Scarlett, that you're doing what I hoped you would do and expected you would do is sheer passion and energy. I told Rob, she's so good that we will want her as a co host on the real time show. So, <laughs> I have a zillion questions for you, but first and foremost, did you ever consider starting your own podcast or being a podcast host? Because your writing is amazing, but you have so much energy. You're probably amazing on video, but also on the mic. Thank you. Um, no, I've never actually thought about it because I think to be a journalist in, in this day and age, um, I don't even want to say in this day and age, it's something we should should always be thinking of is that accountability is super important and I always I'm really aware of what I'm saying and it's you know I guess something with writing you have the luxury of to look back and you know and you edit um you know with, with your words you can't take it back um and it's out there so unless I can edit the entire thing and make sure that you know I'm not saying anything too provocative the irony should I have a podcast no I can't speak um yeah yeah, I guess in a roundabout way, no, I hadn't thought about it because I don't know. I'm not there yet. Like, I'm going to jump in. So I personally think you are there. I did not discuss this with Rob, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Thanks. Would you please be our guest host one time? And I suggest that one of our next female guests is going to be interviewed by you. I would love that. Okay, great. Well, that's that's uh, that's well remembered, Alan. We had this conversation a while ago about having uh, a, a female co-host that then interviewed another female in the industry who then took the hot seat as the host and interviewed another female in the industry oh, that's cool. like carried it oh, on like that because again like like we say like we we have our you know we've been in the watch game for a long time and it would be interesting to hear other voices and other opinions and share them on the platform i mean for me it'd be, it'd be super interesting because uh, you know any opportunity to, to sit down and, and pick someone's brains 
particularly a fellow female journalist. Like I absolutely love Tracy Llewellyn. She is, mm-hmm. I love her. <laughs> I'm gushing over how much I love her, but she's one of the first people I met in the industry and she's always supported me and, and been a, a huge advocate of, of what I've wanted to do. So yeah, I think any opportunity to, to interview a, a, another woman would be incredible. Okay, well, let's set it up. That sounds like a great idea. Alon, do you want to want to take the mic for a little bit? I feel like I'm hogging everything. When you were mentioning names, so excellent questions, by the way, Rob. So I'm sitting literally relaxed and with a big smile on my face. Um, I was hoping you would mention Zenith Scarlet because they were one of the first brands to dump the male, female um, labeling of their collection. And mm-hmm. they also doubled down in their marketing with their Dream Hers project. Are you aware of what they've done? I am a little bit, but then also at the same time, I commend that entirely. And I think it's brilliant that people are, are making watches genderless. But also at the, ta- at the same time, that I actually wrote a piece about this for Horological Journal last year. There's also argument that, is there a laziness to going genderless? Is it a watch brand not actually trying to understand what women want other than shrinking down a watch and putting diamonds on the bezel. Like, you know, is there room for market research to actually go out there, ask women what they want to wear and make a ladies collection um, that represents women rather than just scrapping the title altogether, if that makes sense. Very interesting. Where can we find that? I'll send you the PDF. I'll send you the PDF. Perfect. What Was it published online as well or no? No, it's in Horological Journal. So I think you have to be a subscriber for it. Um, but yeah, I'll send it over to you so you can read it. Amazing. But yeah, I think, it, yeah, there's, there's there's an element of frustration that I get. Like, I'm super happy for it at the same time. But it also feels like, like, have you actually tried to consider about what the woman wants? I think that's an absolutely brilliant point to have raised and a, a wonderful perspective to start discussing in more depth. Because I mentioned that Nawas had kind of gone genderless, mm. but then we got dragged off on a tangent. What I was going to say is it's not something that many brands could do organically and holistically. You know, Nomos kind of fell into that um, possibility because of the watches that they made, because they just so happened to always have been good quality watches on sizes that would be regarded, I guess, as unisex. But it is fascinating to sort of think, yeah, is there... I mean, you're absolutely right. I think I'm not sure if it needs a huge amount of discussion. I totally agree that, yeah, they could you could make that argument of laziness very, very easily because where is the effort? Like how often Mm. are women in the industry or around the industry polled on what they actually want? Like I've heard for years when people started having these conversations a little bit more openly about what makes a good woman's watch. Yeah. But it was all just this supposition. Like it was just guesswork, you know, like even I've been guilty of it as well. Like I sort of figured, oh, well, it's certainly not shrinking it, putting diamonds on it, and then putting a crappy quartz movement in it, because that kind of undermines the whole point of a woman being into watches. It's like, okay, yes, it's an accessory. It's nice to look at, and there are men's watches mm. all the same role, but what about the women that actually care about like yeah. and like what complications are relevant to women as well? Exactly. I think one of the standout moments for me in this industry, and unfortunately, it's a negative one that I had. So I went to, um, to Selfridges on Oxford Street, to go check out the watch room because any opportunity to go see watches that I can't see every day in the flesh, I will always take. And I remember wandering around and I had my tag Monaco under under my sleeve, um, walking around and the guy looked at me and sort of followed me and he was like, can I help you? Not aggressively, but you know, just like, why are you in this room? 
And then I just slowly leaned over the desk and lifted up my sleeve. And he was like, oh my gosh, we'll show you these watches over here. But instant, instantaneously, he took me to the diamond bezel section. And I'm, I was just like, really? Like, would you not ask me first? Like, you know, is there anything I want to see? Any particular brand? But also don't assume that, you know, just because I don't look like your average watch consumer that, I'm walking into this store to do anything other than buy a watch. I have a terrible story to share here of a similar experience that I witnessed firsthand. I was at an event in America and I was there representing Nomos and it was a multi-brand event. So there was like 30 reps uh, all standing around the counters, like guarding their wares. And a young woman came in and she was wearing a Nomos 37 millimeter Neomatic aqua collection club signal blow and i remember seeing it and thinking ah so that's a pretty niche watch like so i struck up a conversation with her i was like oh nice watch um have you been a fan of nomos for long she was like oh yeah i've got a couple of them and i'm, I'm not here to buy another nomos but i'm here to look at grand seiko i'd like to check out the snowflake please and i was like well the grand seiko rep had gone outside for a smoke and i was right next to the grand seiko case and i'm a huge fan of the spring drive caliber so I unlocked it and I got the watches out and we were showing them and we were chatting and she knew like everything about the movements and uh, the dial process and was basically wrapping up. Like, it was unreal. Like she was in- insanely knowledgeable. And I and I talked to her, like we shared our passion for the way that the dial was made, et cetera, et cetera. And she bought the watch there and then. And uh, I resized it. The guy was, I don't know how many cigarettes he smoked outside. He was John Floyd. <laughs> came back in and she had this watch. It was the right size. She put it back in the box because she left the numbers on her wrist and she put it in the bag. And the guy comes in and the owner of the store, he said, hey, Rob just sold a Grand Seiko for you. And he was like, oh, great, great. Where's where's the buyer? And he was like, oh, she, she's right here. And he went, oh, I bet your husband will be really happy with that. Oh, and honestly, honestly, I could have died. I was just like, I just, I looked at her and she just like looked so heartbroken. Yeah. And, and I I couldn't even imagine what that feeling was like. And I know like, okay, it's watchmaking. There are more serious things in the world, but when something is close to someone and they've obviously poured so much time and effort into the research and become like a a, a real, like knowledgeable asset to the industry to be treated like that in that moment, she just bought that watch. She dropped like 6,000 bucks on it or something like there and then. No discount, no nothing, no no free gift. She just bought it because she loved it and she'd done it. I recently. thought I was supposed to be happy coming on this podcast, not angry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm still angry. That was like five years ago. It still pisses me off. Good. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Yes, I will. I will. I promise. Uh, Alon, uh, you you have a, a long history in the diamond trade, of course, and your uh, family jewelers crosses over in watches and jewelry, so you get a lot of customers from different walks of life coming through your doors. Do, do you have any similar experiences of, of customers coming in that have, have had stories like that in their past? Loads, and I can't relate to them because my mum is a rock chick, like Scarlett. <laughs> um, she, she left Tehran very young when it was hip and happening mm-hmm. she was doing her thing that was uh, rather modern for the 70s um or actually it was in the 60s still so she was a free spirit and talking of watches she always loved watches and always rocked big and bigger watches than ladies were supposed to be wearing now my dear wife is actually the same independent mind 
independent lady and also loves different sizes. And our baby girl seems to have inherited the same spirit. So <laughs> the girls in my life aren't like that. And all our team members in the store aren't like that because we are a small independent retailer. Mm -hmm. And I guess the biggest success of our business is we never judge a book by its cover. Yeah. And uh, Rob, you, you, you've been visiting us, I don't know, already for so We're going towards a decade. And yeah, there are loads of these stories, but I don't want to talk about me. What I want to talk with Scarlett about is what is it that urgently needs to change in that context in the watchmaking? Give those industry insiders some tips because loads of them are listening actually to the show. I think from a brand perspective, you've got to open up those channels of communication between younger consumers and brands. And by that, I mean, change your visual language change about how you're writing about these watches from your press releases to your you know <clears throat> media coverage like i get so frustrated and i've said this time and time again i get so frustrated when i see a watch shot against a background of rocks or a tree or something i'm like how does that inspire me to buy this model how does it tell me about this story there's such a static feeling to how people think still life should be I'm like, you can shoot watches in the most beautiful ways. And, you know, that can instantly not just become a moment for a beautiful watch, but a beautiful image that people want to hold on to. Like, I've got a whole archive of photos that I've found since being in this industry where I've seen watches shot in phenomenal ways. And I think there's there needs to be more an emphasis of actually seeing watches in movement as well. So we're reminded that they are lifelong companions and, you know, they're not just sat in a box and they're not, you know, always kept still and I think I mean you know I'm grateful that I've been allowed to see in this industry so the industry is definitely doing something right in terms of letting younger voices come into the mix but I think I experienced it time and time again where you know brands might say this is not based just off my experience but where brands might say we want to do something that really hits it you know the younger generation like the new the new group of consumers and you give them the idea and they go oh, I think it's a bit left field that's like <laughs> you always can't win it's like you, you know you've got to you've got to adapt your strategy if you want to stay relevant because you know where, where's this next generation going to be like who's who's going to care about these watches in, in 20 years time and yes they might say we're using social media but how are you using your social media how are you actually engaging with people and there seems to still be I'm fortunate as a journalist that I'm able to be closer to a brand because you're in that middleman position between, you know, reader, consumer, me, and then the brand. But for those people that, you know, aren't in the media, how how can you open up more of a relationship between them if you want these these models to have a lasting impact on people's lives? Like going back to what I said earlier, the watches aren't cheap. Like, you know, it's there needs to be memory and importance and purpose behind that you know not always if you're just buying a watch ad hoc and whatever fine um but half the time when you're spending so much money on these damn things you know, there needs to be a story behind it that you relate to and i think we're not putting enough emphasis on that and we're certainly not putting enough emphasis on 
you know, relating watches to how we can actually care about the planet as well. And, you know, same for the fashion industry. It's it's not all on the watch industry at all. But I think we're too fixated on, oh, I, yeah, like, you know, making sure that it gets in the right person's hands. But who is that right person? It's about really shifting the narrative. And I think, you know, unfortunately, KPIs and all of that and, you know, sales have to be here. But there's a way that you can do that tactfully that actually confirms a brand's place in the future by speaking to young people. God, that was a monologue, wasn't it? I mean, that's that's what we're here for, to be honest, is much better than <laughs> ramble on about nonsense as usual. It raises an interesting point, though. I mean, it's it's really it's really good to hear because it's actually something I'd not really thought about so much, like static imagery and mm. how samey and monotonous and how dry it is and I like how terrible it is when it comes to storytelling. But that is important. But how important is it in your mind that brick and mortar retail stores survive do you think they have a role to play in the communication of watches and their value to the next generation or do you think that it's all going digital no yes absolutely i think you can't have one without the other in the same way that you have paper digital paper digital living in perfect symbiosis not perfect but you know in in symbiosis with one another um you know i still haven't bought my first watch I've been in this industry for two years. I don't just want to buy that online and then, you know, get a Royal Mail red card telling me that I've missed my delivery and then it eventually arrives. And I'm like, okay, here's this big moment I've worked towards. Um, Because, you know, I I will have to work towards that moment because I have to save money for that watch that I want. And I think the store experience is so integral to, to part of that narrative. And don't get me wrong, I think, you know, store experience is something that needs to be considered a lot more from how you get spoken to, to, you know, making that experience seamless and it not being a stuffy process or you being sidelined for someone who's buying, you know, two watches or has bought 10 in the past. So they're going to get priority. I think it's about making everybody feel welcome that walks through that store, no matter what they look like or how old they are. But I think we shouldn't be getting rid of them. We should be seeing it as a... um, Oh God, what's the word? Like a, like an ecosystem almost where you need to have one in order for the other to work because how are you expected to tell your entire story from a website that, you know, people will close with the click of a button? Like a store's permanent, it has permanence to it. And I think it's a really visual way for people to see what a brand actually means. Wow. That was incredibly well delivered. Thank really you. warmed up. <laughs> feeling it, feeling it rolling now. Jeez. <laughs> I'm also feeling like my host's hot seat is getting hotter by the second. I'm going to have to jump back here. Let's hand it over to you. Uh, so, okay, this is a low-hanging fruit as far as questions go, but I am curious. Like, What's on your shortlist or what has caught your eye over the last two years that might be, if not the first watch you buy, because perhaps the ones that have really wired you are stratospherically expensive and might take a little bit of getting up towards, but what kind of pieces are you thinking of? So I really, really want a Cartier... Santos Galbi, Galbi, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it has a burgundy dial um, and the matching burgundy stone on the crown. Um, I couldn't actually tell you the size because I got so excited when I tried it on. I forgot to ask all the important questions. Um, I actually wrote about this recently on GQ. Um, no slacks or plug there to go and read it. Um, but I saw it 
I've seen it online and then I saw it on 47th Street um, in New York. Um, and I'd actually interviewed the person that was selling it. And I'm so excited. I literally didn't ask any of the questions, but I rang my friend David Sharp and I was like, what do I do? What do I need to ask? And like, I basically did everything wrong that you weren't supposed to do when you're buying a watch. But I walked away because I was like, this is a lot of money to just, you know, go in haphazard and not really think about it. But I definitely want a Cartier for my first watch because for me, it marries my foundations to where I am now. It's, you know, my my roots in the fashion industry and my roots in in watches now. Um, so definitely that's up there. Um, I also am actually wearing it right now, which really excites me. It's it's not bought. It's it's being tried and tested out by me right now. I'm actually wearing a um Oris Aquis upcycle. And this was one of the first watches that came out when I first joined the industry. And I remember like absolutely loving it. Um, and I know some people might be like, yeah, but I think it's amazing. Um, and the fact that every dial is different and the fact that it's taking plastic out of the ocean, I thought was really interesting as well. Um, so I actually trying this out at the moment. It's a 36 millimeter. I did try out the 41 and a half, but I was like, I'm going to go smaller this time and see how it goes. So I really wanted that. I had, didn't actually end up buying it, but I'm testing it out at the moment. Um, what else? Um, I mean, I have a few really lovely watches in my collection that I've acquired on random whims. I mean, nothing expensive at all or stuff that I've inherited from my parents. So I have my dad's Monaco, which has a mint bracelet, which I really love because you don't really see them that often. Um, and then I have a Bella Ross that my dad actually bought for my mum and my mum absolutely hated it. Um, and I was like, I love it because it's just the shape of it's so different and it's really cool. Um, and then I have... so in me being in the watch industry I think it made my mum and dad slightly happy that they knew what to get me for my birthday not saying they'd buy me like a three thousand pound watch at all they bought me a really really beautiful cocktail watch and I think it was like 200 quid um and it's a little Tudor I think it's like 16 millimeters um and it's got a tiny little Rolex movement in it and it's the most insane thing I'm obsessed with it it's my pride and joy um, I love it to pieces and then I have a really beautiful 1970s um, gold long jeans watch um, and my granddad's Omega Omega Deville from the 70s which I got given for my birthday as well um, and hounded my dad for it um, and I was like I don't care that it's your heirloom I wanted um, so I didn't really give him a say in that one but then I actually bought myself a 30 pound at-risk bracelet um, which has a tiny little watch on it for £30 in Notting Hill in London. Um, and I was so excited because I was like, I technically have bought my first ever watch. Um, but yeah, <laughs> long way around it. Um, I really want a Cartier. <laughs> I've been a bit obsessed with Cartiers myself recently as well. And there's an incredible number of interesting pieces from the not so distant past that can be had for really reasonable yeah. prices these days. And obviously we've seen the secondary market collapse in in recent months and who knows where the bottom is but honestly there's some great like oh god what's the name it's it's a round basically like a round santos i know that sounds like completely contradictory but i i found it on kind 24 and i was like what the hell is this and i think it's just quartz but it's so beautiful so elegant and it's like 33 millimeters which yeah. is you know it's a, it's a nice size i think for a, a, a watch with a bracelet like it has a good sort of vintage sort of size to it on the wrist but 
Good choice. I'm very impressed. I hope you managed to find like uh, a decent one as well. Well, I actually found one. On, I found it on eBay the other week, and it was it was on there for eighteen hundred. And then I looked twelve hours later, and it went up six thousand eight hundred. And I was like, alas, I think I'm ruled out of this one. <laughs> That's pretty fucking brutal. I know. I've had some horrible, horrible moments, like situations like that, when I've allowed myself just to entertain the possibility for yeah, longer than yeah. I should have done. I know. And then heartbreak, absolute heartbreak. Yeah, I happened to me this week, but not in quite the same way. There was a, a, a Langer and Zona, which I've idolized. Mm-hmm. The, I've idolized the brand. I hadn't idolized this, idolized this model until I saw it on Subdial, a UK website. I don't know if you know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw it like for the first time last week when one of my mates introduced me to it and I was like, oh no, what have you done? Because they have like an incredible array of watches, an incredible condition. And I saw this langer and I was like, oh, that's the most beautiful langer I've ever seen. And I've always wanted yeah. one as my goal, but it was unfortunately 40,000 pounds, which I I have like maybe I need, about 39,000 to go maybe. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it was a long way off. And I was thinking, okay, yeah. can I sell my entire collection? And buy this one watch. And Don't I really, do that. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, very interesting, interesting response. We'll dig into that in a second. But I thought about, should I do it? And I went out with a couple of guys that own a watch brand here in Dresden. Um, Josef and Lucas from Pullman Brazen. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're quite new. But if you've not, I'll send you a link to the website. Okay, so I'm fine. Cool. Really nice guys. And we sat down and we had dinner together. I, I told them about this story and this like this feeling of, pre-loss i was suffering from i was like it's like this watch yeah something makes me feel like it's already mine and the chances of me being able to move enough pieces quickly enough and then find the supplemental cash that i would need to get up to the forty thousand pounds not forty thousand euros it's forty five thousand euros would take me months and as i was saying to them, there's no way that it's still going to be there but should I try? Should I talk to them and say, can you reserve it? Or can I like put someone down here or there and like pay it off over a period of time? And they absolutely encouraged me to do it based on the principle of if your goal is to own that watch one day, to own a Lang & Zona, and you're not moving heaven and earth to get one that you really want when you have even the slightest opportunity to get it, what are you playing at? And yeah. I thought, and we, we could probably have an hour conversation about like the, the nature and value of ownership and what it means to different people. And what, yeah. I had a thought and I had a moment and I, and I thought, you know what? These guys, they're right. Like I should try and get it. Anyway, I contacted them and I wrote a list of like 15 watches that I'd be happy to like trade for it plus extra cash and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they were receptive enough to that idea. But then within another 12 hours, somebody had actually put down the money Aww. and the cash and- yeah, that was wasn't meant to be. No, no, I'm still suffering. <laughs> I also really want a Moser as well. Really love. Oh, Moser. really? Oh, which yeah. one? Or ones? I don't know if it's out yet, so I'm kind of scared to say. So we break embargoes all the time on the show because I'm terrible at keeping quiet. That's about fine for you guys to do it, but I'm saucing out. I don't want to break them. <laughs> So just keep this bit out. <laughs> right, we'll we'll beep it out. We'll beep it out. Yeah, and or oh, I'll do something funny. <laughs> okay, so there's a, there's a Moser under embargo that you want. Yeah, I met him at Geneva Watch Days and just really really enjoyed his story and and just hearing you know how he feels about watches and they also gave me an inflatable Moser watch which was really yeah. cool. Um, did you like? Did you get one? 
Yeah, I've I've got one. I've been uh, lolling around on the seas of Mallorca on it for the last. Uh... <laughs> I've not blown it up yet. Um, I think it will be bigger than my flat. Um, so I I I don't blow it up. But I was like, this is cool. That's how you tap into the younger generation, giving them inflatable. <laughs> yeah, I actually got two, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give one away uh, to the podcast listeners. So for all of you listening. Uh, to win this Moser Inflatable, all you have to do is join the TRTS Network WhatsApp group, and you can do that by contacting Alon or I, or even Scarlett, because she's part of the team now, via <laughs> uh, Instagram or email. Okay, yeah, but yeah, that was a good giveaway. What were the other best giveaways that you've encountered so far? Oh, um, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When I got my first ever um, Pastex scarf, I was like, oh my God, I'm so important. <laughs> um I think I've now got three. Um, what? And then, yeah, I've got a few of them, actually. I'm not going to lie. I'm a sucker for the hats. I've got yep. so many. I, I've got a really cool Jacob & Co travel pouch. Nice. That's fun. Um, but I can't. you can't beat the Rolex hat. Or the Rolex chocolates. They are good. <laughs> or what's the, you know, like the chocolate almonds? Oh, those little ones in the orange box. Yeah, I've literally got them in my kitchen right now. I'm looking at them. Oh my god, they are crack. They are insane. All right. Well, it's good to know that I'm actually uh, allergic to almonds, but I get given these things wholesale, so I'll save well, them. Well, palm you. them off my way, please. Yeah, I'll, love that. I'll, I'll swap your ten boxes of almonds for a Patek scarf or something. <laughs> <laughs> good deal. <laughs> we'll talk about the specifics off air. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Alon, uh, do you have another couple of questions before we wrap it up? I have a zillion, and only <laughs> the first two will spin Scarlet into okay. two monologues of half an hour. So I suggest we are going to thank Scarlet from the bottom of our hearts, okay. delivering not what we expected, but exponentially of what we've expected. Scarlet, thank you so much. It was a joy. I don't think I've ever spoken so little on the episode so thank you for take, making my life easy and i want to bet because i told rob he's going to fall in love with you like i did over <laughs> over the right, airport I'm, def I'm definitely editing this out we need to stop <laughs> you know I, I i have a reputation no i don't want you to embellish this reputation any further okay I'm no but it's an intellectual love yeah uh, i can take that yeah, okay. It's actual love only. <laughs> like I love you, like I love you, like your horological brother. She's a horological <laughs> sister. Yeah, but you do get a bit inappropriately sexual sometimes, even with me. <laughs> yeah, because because we are we we're 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 fluid. Anyway, we're you deviating. Are. <laughs> You're very fluid. You're practically yeah, I, liquid. I didn't say liquid, huh? <laughs> God, is it time okay. to have a drink? Yeah. It All right. yeah it's, it's, it's five o'clock in Europe. Mainland Europe is five o'clock. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere in the world. Neither of you guys are in Geneva tomorrow, are you? Oh, that's that's such a hammer drop, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's, are you there for the GPHG? I am. And then I'm doing Dubai next week. First time ever. <laughs> Me too. Um, are you? Yeah, but only for a day. Like I'm there on the 16th and I've never been before, so. Oh, okay, Fab. Well, if you're around, we should definitely catch up and put faces to names and all of that. That sounds lovely. Thank you again, Scala. I'll echo everything Alon said and some of the stuff we had to edit out as well. If you have questions for Scala and you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so via contacting us 
Over Instagram, I'm there at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon can be found at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Our resident provocateur, David Vaucher, can be found at D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. Or you can contact us via email, either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show or via the website, www.therealtime.show. As I said before, if you'd like to join the network, our WhatsApp community, please just get in touch via one of those channels. We'll be back next week with another Q&A session and another interview with one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs> <laughs>